Not many people listening to this podcast have lived in a world without nuclear weapons, which, just a quick update, there are currently about 15,000 warheads held by nine nations. In the U.S. alone, we have over 7,000. If you're listening to this in Seattle, just 20 miles away is the Bangor subbase, which has the highest concentration of nuclear weapons in the world. But at one point, these weapons were merely science fiction. They had first appeared in H.G. Wells' novel, The World Set Free published in 1914, and later in short stories that appeared in magazines like Astounding Science Fiction. And that is how people thought of them, as astounding pieces of science fiction. Until they weren't. Until we had pictures of mushroom clouds. Until we had stories of radiation sickness. And until Cold War strategies used the term megadeths, which meant a million people killed by a single event. But from 1914, when Wells wrote his book, until 1945, when President Truman came on the radio to tell the world that the U.S. had dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. The public has thought of nuclear weapons as science fiction. They had no idea that secretly, during World War II, some of the brightest minds in the world worked to make nuclear weapons a reality. During that time, nuclear facilities at Hanford, Washington, along with Los Alamos, New Mexico, and Oak Ridge, Tennessee, were some of the most scientifically advanced facilities in the world. Now, 70 years later, a new generation of scientists at Hanford are trying to clean up the legacy of those atomic weapons, and their work is at the forefront of science. The question of what to do with nuclear waste has not yet been answered. The big problems at Hanford that these scientists are working on include trying to clean up groundwater that is contaminated, tearing down radioactive buildings, and keeping 56 million gallons of highly radioactive and chemical waste safely contained. That last one is a big one. The current plan is to turn the waste, which is currently stored in giant storage tanks, into glass. The glass will still be radioactive, but it will be easier to contain and keep from leaking into the environment. It will then be put into concrete and steel and buried deep underground, and everyone will cross their fingers and hope that no one disturbs it for tens of thousands of years, at which point it will be no longer radioactive. Trying to imagine what the society will be like in 10,000 years and trying to imagine what kind of danger markers will need to be left to alert future people to these hazards leads to more thoughts of science fiction. Welcome to Down by the River, Stories of Hanford. My name is Danny Noonan and I'm with Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. Each month we bring you stories from Hanford. Once a facility producing plutonium for the United States nuclear weapons, now it's the site of the largest environmental cleanup project in the world. This month, we're going to bring you stories that, although they took place at Hanford, each of the stories seems more like a piece of science fiction, but they are true. There are stories of the Atomic Man, the fate of the Z-plant, secret government programs, and scientists at Hanford listening to the soundtrack of the universe. This month, we are joined by students from the University of Washington's Bothell campus. They wrote, produced, and recorded one of the stories you will later hear. When you hear the name Atomic Man, you might think of a cheap comic book or a B-movie from the 1950s. But the Atomic Man was a real person. Well, it was a nickname given to a worker at Hanford. A name he earned when he was part of one of the worst accidents at the site, and also one of the most bizarre. The night was August 30th, 1976. 
Harold McCluskey was in a good mood when he went into work at the plutonium finishing plant that night. He had just celebrated his 40th wedding anniversary with his wife, Ella. He was also happy just to be back at work. A five-month strike had shut down the plutonium finishing plant, and it was his first night back. Before McCluskey could get to work, he had to pass by razor wire, guards with guns, and bomb-sniffing dogs. The plutonium finishing plant was the most secure place on the Hanford site. The plutonium finishing plant, also known as PFP or the Z plant, was a special place at Hanford. It was the end of the line. After plutonium was processed there, nothing more could be done with it at Hanford. Next stop would be a different facility in the U.S.'s nuclear weapons complex. Most of the plutonium that arrived at the PFP was in liquid form. The main job of the PFP was to take that liquid plutonium and make solid plutonium buttons, which would be put into nuclear weapons. These buttons had the size, shape, and color of a hockey puck. How many buttons did the PFP at Hanford make? Well, that information is still classified. What I can tell you is that at one point, the United States had over 30,000 warheads, and each warhead had one of these buttons inside. And Hanford made more of these buttons than any other American facility. Hanford eventually made about two-thirds of these buttons. Work at the PFP included some other projects besides making nuclear hockey pucks. There, they reclaimed plutonium from scrap metal and recovered a americium-241 from radioactive waste material. While americium-241 is a highly radioactive substance, you most likely have some in your house. Since americium can be used to detect the presence of smoke or heat, it makes the perfect element for smoke detectors. There are some smoke detectors that don't use americium, but they are both more expensive and less effective. And it doesn't take much. One gram of americium oxide provides enough active material for more than 3 million household smoke detectors. Now, the amount of americium that is in your smoke detector is not dangerous, but the process for extracting it is very dangerous, which is why workers at the PFP would use glove boxes. Glove boxes are a tool for handling hazardous and radioactive materials. Workers would put their hands into gloves that act as a portal to the inside of the box. There are heavy leaded glass windows so they can see what they're doing, but the box is airtight and the material it is made out of prevents radiation from escaping. But let's go back to McCluskey. Like I said, he was happy to be back at work at the PFP until he got to his glove box. Then there was a bit of a problem. The active ingredient for americium extraction process is a special type of resin. The container that held the resin had been accidentally left in the glove box during the strike. McCluskey immediately thought back to his training. It had been made very clear not to try the process if the resin was three months old. Anything older than that and it could blow up. The strike had lasted for five months. There was no way he was going to risk it. He called his bosses explained the situation, and said he couldn't continue with the resin. His boss made some calls up the chain of command. Soon word came back to McCluskey. He was to proceed. McCluskey was hesitant, but in his own words, he was not a gambling man. After putting almost 30 years into the job, he was about to retire. He didn't feel it was the time to be insubordinate. Instead, he was going to do what he was told. At about 2.45 a.m., McCluskey was up on a ladder and he heard an unfamiliar hissing noise. He looked at the box and saw it was filling with a dense brown fume. The hissing began to intensify. He yelled that it was going to blow, and he was right. He was only five feet away when it exploded. The rubber protective respirator he was wearing was ripped from his head. 
acid hit him in the face, temporarily blinding him. He was hit with hundreds of pieces of radioactive metal, along with the leaded glass and rubber. Radioactive particles coated his body. His lungs filled with radioactive fumes. McCluskey had been hit with 500 times the occupational allowed amounts of radiation. A bloody McCluskey was put into an ambulance. When he arrived at the decontamination center, he was so hot or radioactive that he was taken from the ambulance to an isolation tank by remote control so the staff would not also receive doses of radiation from handling him. For the next three weeks, McCluskey was in a steel and concrete isolation tank. Nurses came in three times a day to scrub him down. Once a day, the nurses shaved every hair on his body. This was to remove as much radioactive material as possible. The nurses wore respirators and protective clothing. He was still temporarily blinded by the acid that hit him in the face, and his hearing was also temporarily damaged by the explosion, so everything the nurses and the doctors said sounded like gibberish. He was unable to communicate with anybody. Each breath he exhaled was filled with americium. All the water and towels used to clean him were sent to Hanford to be disposed of with other radioactive waste. When his wife came to visit him, she had to stand 30 feet away behind protective glass. McCluskey had nine doctors. These doctors had to laboriously extract tiny bits of glass and razor-sharp pieces of metal embedded in his skin. They gave him shots of experimental drugs. McCluskey would later recall that four of his doctors gave him a 50-50 chance of survival, while the other five just shook their heads in dismay. Time passed. McCluskey stayed stable. When the radioactivity in his body had finally dropped 80% after five months in the isolation facility, he was allowed to go home. But his life as the Atomic Man had just begun. Friends called to say that they loved him and they were glad he was doing well, but they were afraid to visit him at his house. He rotated which barber he went to for haircuts to prevent any place from getting a bad reputation. When he returned to church, the minister had to instruct people that it was safe to sit with him. McCluskey had planned to spend his retirement hunting and fishing. Health problems from the accident prevented this. His health decreased greatly. He had kidney infections, four heart attacks, and cataracts on both eyes. He needed a cornea transplant, and his blood platelets often dropped so low he needed transfusions. He spent his time listening to the Bible on tape and tending a rose garden. Up through the last years of his life, his body would still set off a Geiger counter. Despite everything that happened, he was peaceful about the situation. He credited his wife and his faith for keeping him strong. He thought that holding a grudge would make the last years of his life more difficult. He did sue the government for just under a million dollars. In the end, they settled for about a quarter of that, plus lifetime medical expenses. In an interview, McCluskey's wife Ella said they hesitated on making the payment. That's when she told them she would refuse to let them perform an autopsy when he died. They paid up. Although McCluskey died 11 years after the explosion, the danger from the accident still poses a threat to the workers at Hanford to this day, over 40 years later. When Hanford's mission switched from plutonium production to cleanup in the 1990s, the PFP was one of the biggest challenges. First off, the PFP isn't just one building. The facility is actually made up of 80 different buildings that cover a 14-acre complex. Right now, workers are trying to get the PFP down to slab-on-grade status. Slab-on-grade is the Hanford jargon that means the buildings will be decontaminated and demolished, the debris removed, and all that will be left will be the concrete floors of the various structures. When the mission to produce plutonium ended, more than 20 tons of material containing plutonium remained in various processing stages at the PFP. That meant the first step was to stabilize the leftover material and package it for disposal. Some of it was shipped off the site for disposal, and some was stored in a vault on the site. 
That took workers from 1990 to 2004 to complete. Then, in 2007, the Department of Energy established a national plutonium storage site at the Savannah River site in South Carolina. This meant that all the plutonium stored in the vault could be shipped off the Hanford site. It took more than two years to empty the vault and ship all the plutonium to the Savannah River site. This was a really big day for workers at PFP. The barbed wire, guards, guns, and dogs that had been there during production and cleanup were gone overnight. With the plutonium over in the Savannah River site, the security was not as strict. As one worker at the PFP remembers it, People found themselves able to simply walk into their workplace every day. It was a, it was a watershed moment for people. It was, it was a dramatic change in what they were used to. I think most of the folks that worked at the plutonium plant did feel both both bitter and sweet at the same time. It's part of the mission, it's what we're here to do. Um, it makes our job easier from a, a, a deactivation and decommissioning standpoint, but at the same time, it's a way of life that doesn't exist anymore. With all the plutonium out of the PFP, workers were then ready to decontaminate the complex, remove the processing equipment inside, and tear it down. But that is easier said than done. Let me list some of what had to be done. Workers had to remove and dispose of more than 230 large pieces of contaminated equipment, most of which were glove boxes and hoods. They had to remove miles and miles of drain and vacuum pipe. They had to remove over 6,000 feet of ventilation duct. They had to remove almost 200 pencil-shaped tanks that were each 22 feet long. And there's thousands of pieces of various equipment that was contaminated that needed to be removed. And all of this was contaminated to some level by radioactivity. Workers had to wear special suits that included layers of protective clothing, face covering hoods, and supplied air. If that sounds like a lot to put on, it is. It takes about 20 minutes to put on and nearly the same amount of time to take off. There are some areas of PFP that if only a few workers were needed to enter, it would take a support team of dozens of people to make sure everything went safely. And remember, this is a facility made up of 80 buildings spread over 14 acres. During all this decommissioning, the Department of Energy had a motto, steady, slow, safe progress. For most of the cleanup, things were going really well. People were happy with the progress being made. The contractors were being commended for not only the speed of the work, but also for the safe manner in which it was being conducted. Then in the summer of 2015, about a year away from the scheduled demolishing of the PFP, a series of problems started popping up. In late July and August, there were seven incidences of worker skin becoming contaminated with radiological material. Sometimes it was because seams in the suits didn't work correctly. Other times it happened when the suits were being removed. During the winter of 2015 through 2016, four pieces of contaminated equipment had been sent to Hanford's fire station for storage. When it was discovered, over 100 of the firefighters working at the station requested to be tested. Only one of them tested positive for internal radiation contamination, and this was at a very low level. A month later, another piece of contaminated equipment from the PFP was found at the Hanford Fire Station. Besides the contaminated equipment being sent to the fire station, there were at least three different instances of contaminated equipment being accidentally sent off the Hanford site to different states for repairs. The Department of Energy said the contamination was too low to present any health dangers, but still, it left the state. After decades of good work, and with the deadline for the final deconstruction looming months away, these accidents are making some people worried. One of those people is the president of CH2M Hill, which is the contractor responsible for the work at PFP. 
He recently sent out a memo stressing that the mission and deadline are critical, but not at the risk of safety. He went on to announce a list of measures to improve safety at the PFP and other Hanford projects the contractor works on. The biggest was bringing in a new management team at PFP. The cleanup work at the PFP is a daunting task, and everyone wants it done safely and on schedule. Hopefully in the next six months, that is what will happen. I would have liked to have more information on this, or at least some other voices as part of the story, but both the Department of Energy and CH2M Hill declined to be interviewed as part of this podcast. We live in a world of government secrets. It doesn't seem like a day goes by without headlines about the CIA, the NSA, Edward Snowden, or WikiLeaks. But there's a time when a secret government program wasn't something Americans thought about. The Manhattan Project, which created Hanford and the atomic bombs, was unprecedented with all of its secrecy and security. The following is a story about the secrecy of the Manhattan Project. This story is presented by students from the University of Washington, Bothell. Alan, David, Michaela, Jessica, and Jenny. This is a podcast about secrecy in the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project's main goal during World War II was to create an atomic bomb with the power to end the war. The project spanned over 20 facilities in the U.S. alone and employed over 130,000 workers at its peak. Keeping all those people organized depended highly on strict secrecy. No matter how controversial the overall goal of the project was, it was undeniably a success. The project conducted all the research and ended up building a working atomic bomb in only two years. There were many factors that played into the success of the project, but the high security kept the sensitive information safe from other countries and ultimately allowed for the project to produce such amazing results so quickly. In this podcast, we are going to listen to the stories of a few people involved in the project and discuss its drastic security measures and how they influenced its success. That varied too. You know, some when I talked to people, you know, some people told me I was afraid, you know, I'd I'd say something wrong and, you know, I'd get I'd get fired. And then I had other people I talked to say, well, it didn't really, you know, it didn't really bother me. Uh, the one thing that does seem to be uh, across the board was that when you first got here, it was a little, uh, a little, took a little getting used to all of the secrecy. So you just heard from Denise Kiernan, who compiled a book of interviews with female workers from Oak Ridge, who worked on the Manhattan Project. It's crazy how some of them were really scared to speak up about the secrecy, while some didn't care at all. And some of them were even working with fear of being cautious of what they were saying. I mean, for me personally, I wouldn't be able to do that. Coming home is a place where I can relax and enjoy myself. Talk about, you know, <laughs> what pissed me off, what I enjoy, you know, things like that. Like, you know, what I enjoyed about work. But I shouldn't have to be, I shouldn't have to watch what I say when I come home and keep my work a secret. How can people not be bothered by that? I don't know. I guess I understand why they had to keep the whole project a secret, though, so that no one could find out what the project was. Understandable. Some people were probably just used to it and didn't think much about the secrecy. The secrecy just seemed so drastic, though, for the people working there, but I guess its effects were positive for the overall success of the project. The German scientists working towards the same goal, and they had the, no idea that the U.S. were, like, as far as long of the atomic bomb as they thought they were. This gave us an edge over them. 
the next clip, you'll be hearing from Lawrence Litt, who is a transfer to Los Alamos from his laboratory at the University of Chicago, where he studied radioactive materials. We were not allowed to correspond with other scientists at all. Uh, in late 1944, uh, we got permission to visit our family in Chicago, and I was told that I was not allowed to say anything about what I was working on. And I knew that I was being followed by G-men to make sure I didn't say anything. So you guys just heard from Lawrence Litz, who was a physicist studying radioactivity in a laboratory at the University of Chicago, who then was transferred to Los Alamos. So when Litz's family trip to Chicago, he was told not to mention anything that would involve with his line of work. The engineer who was following him would ensure that he didn't mention or accidentally leak any information out. It was pretty clear that the engineers from Los Alamos thought that what he knew was secret enough that it needed to be constantly observed to ensure he didn't leak anything. They must have been taking their jobs pretty seriously. Yeah, even if they flew out all the way to Chicago to make sure that nothing was leaked. I mean, the whole project completely hinged on secrecy. The less people that knew what was going on, the better. I mean, even when Truman took office, he had to be told about the project. He was the vice president and he didn't even know about it. I mean, it all comes down to the goal of the project. They wanted to end the war and they had to make this bomb before Germany. It was smart of them to be as careful as they were because the costs were so high. The secrecy was what kept the pro their progress safe. This has been a podcast about secrecy in the Manhattan Project. All the interviews from this podcast came from the Atomic Heritage Foundation's Voices of the Manhattan Project website and S.L. Sanger's collection on voices. Thank you for listening. Hanford is a big place, 528 square miles. If you're trying to picture that, imagine half the state of Rhode Island. Most of the buildings are either from the era of plutonium production or part of cleanup. There are nine reactors in various states of decommission, a giant landfill, tank farms with 177 underground tanks holding 56 million gallons of liquid waste. Then there's the waste treatment plant, also known as the vitrification plant. Construction of that building started in 2002. They thought it would be online and processing waste in 2007. And here we are in 2016, and the scheduled startup has now been pushed back to 2022. Some key aspects of the facility have not even been designed yet. But cleanup is not the only thing going on at Hanford. There's the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, or PNNL. There, scientists conduct research and development for the Department of Energy related to energy, environmental, and national security. If you happen to go to the Super Bowl this year, you didn't realize it, but you were scanned for evidence of having handled a nuclear device. That technology was developed at PNNL. Scientists from PNNL also work on issues related to climate change, and some of the PNNL scientists shared the Nobel Prize with Al Gore in 2007. There's also the Columbia Generating Station, the Pacific Northwest's only nuclear power plant. Back in the 1970s, there were five reactors proposed in Washington state. Construction only began on two, and just one was completed. But one of the strangest places on the Hanford Nuclear Reservation, one that seems like it was pulled from an issue of astounding science fiction, is LIGO. LIGO stands for the Laser Infometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. So yeah, let's call it LIGO. 
LIGO is the place that allows scientists to listen to the soundtrack of the universe. LIGO is built to test gravitational waves. These were first proposed by Albert Einstein in 1916. To put it simply, the idea is that space and time curve in the presence of mass, and that this curvature is how gravity is created. Imagine two children running in circles on a rectangular trampoline, creating vibrations that travel to the end. Those are gravitational waves. When Einstein came up with his theory, he said it was unlikely that we could ever detect those vibrations. And then he said they didn't exist. Then he changed his mind before changing it again. Without proof, scientists debated their existence for decades. By the 1970s, a few scientists started to sketch out ways they could actually check for these. In the 1990s, after decades of studies, reports, presentations, and committee hearings, a handful of scientists received the necessary funding. Some people who doubted the wave's existence thought this was a waste of time, money, and resources. There are two facilities. One was built at Hanford, just a 10-minute drive from the Columbia Generating Station, that lonely Pacific Northwest nuclear plant. The other facility is built in a swamp in Livingston, Louisiana. LIGO tests for gravitational waves with mile-long tubes that have lasers and mirrors inside. The mirrors alone weigh 90 pounds and cost half a million dollars. To create a vacuum inside the tube, they pump the air out for 40 days. After that, the tubes are a trillionth as dense at the atmosphere at sea level. The laser beams are shot towards the mirror, and when they head back, they should be in sync, unless a gravitational wave passes through. These instruments are so sensitive, it would be very easy to have interference. Everything from Hanford's notorious wind to a lightning storm on the other side of the country, a car passing by the site, or an airplane flying above. All the instruments had to be tuned to ignore any of these commonplace interferences. In 2010, LIGO was shut down for upgrades and then scheduled to restart again in September 2015. On September 13th, 2015, just four days before it was officially going to be turned back on, the crew at LIGO were busy doing some last-minute tests. Basically, they were making noise to make sure the instruments wouldn't confuse it with gravitational waves. They had motorcycles and shakers and good old-fashioned yelling. They were up until four in the morning and still not done. They finally called it a night and went home. They left the machine on to record the data. Less than a half hour after they walked out the door, LIGO detected a wave. They didn't expect wave results until 2017 or even 2018. Now, you might be asking yourself, why is detecting a wave so important? The wave's discovery confirms an important aspect of the theory of relativity. The discovery also changes the way scientists can explore the universe. There is information coded in each wave. These waves could help us learn more about the Big Bang and how the universe was formed. Gravitational waves could also help physicists understand the fundamental laws of the universe and ultimately point us to a theory of everything. LIGO detected waves so quickly, some members of the team thought it was a kind of test. There was a blind injection group. Part of their job was to add fake signals to the data without telling the analysts. This was a way to test the detector and the analysts. The blind injection group swore they hadn't done it. It became awkward after this because some of the scientists thought that their denial was part of the test. Some even thought that the machine may have been sabotaged. They checked, double-checked, and triple-checked before checking one more time. The scientists were about to claim they detected something that measured a thousandth of a diameter of a proton. They had to make sure they were right. They finally announced it this last February. It is being heralded as one of the biggest scientific discoveries of all time. And it all happened at Hanford.
If you want to know more about Hanford, including links to some of the stories and studies we've mentioned in this episode, you can go to our website, wpsr.org, and then to the Hanford tab. You can find transcripts of the show as well as ways to stream or download this podcast via iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you have any questions, comments, or stories of your own, please contact me at daniel at wpsr.org. I want to thank the students from UW Bothell for their story. Our next episode will feature more stories from the students, as well as interviews with them about the process they went through in creating the stories. Please tune in, and thanks for listening. <laughs>